This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Libby Cantrell, and she is the head of public policy affairs and government affairs at PIMCO, where she not only works lobbying to make sure PIMCO's voice is represented in D.C., but is integrated very closely with the Investment Committee explaining what is coming down the road from Congress in D.C. Uh, and what various events are going to do that could very well impact uh, bond or stock holdings. And, and that's a really uh, unique position in the world of finance. Uh, PIMCO literally created this role just for her, and she's been thriving uh, doing this. If you are at all interested in government affairs, public policy, and how that intersects with finance and Wall Street, then you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my chat with PIMCO's Libby Cantrell. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Libby Cantrell. She is head of public policy at PIMCO, the investing giant, uh, managing a trillion plus dollars in fixed income and equities. She coordinates the firm's response to policy issues and analyzes political events for the firm's investment committee. Uh, she has an MBA out of Harvard, undergraduate. She was at Brown. She is also a CFA charter holder, Libby Cantrell. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the early days of your career. You started as an investment banking analyst in 2000, pretty much as the bubble was blowing up. What right. was it like to begin your career in that environment? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was certainly an interesting time. And not only did, was I in investment banking, but I was actually in the technology corporate finance department of investment banking. Perfect. So I was right. I was uh, uh, had a, a front row uh, seat in some ways um, to to the the run up to the bubble, and then of course the the bubble bursting. I mean, it was you know it was interesting because I think in some ways looking back on it, it just um, I think it reinforced this idea of. Uh, the markets are cyclical. Um, that you know that 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 asset you know prices go up, and if they go up to a point where um, that they seem completely disconnected to their fundamentals, then they're pro they probably there's probably a problem. Um, so I, you know, it, going back, I I, uh, I didn't have a sort of a traditional business background in, in college. I I majored in, in math and and economics um, at Brown. We don't there was no pre business. But uh, math course. and economics is pretty much what yeah, you need if you're going to yeah, go if you're into do markets. finance. But it's different, right? I mean, I had, I'd never taken an accounting course. But but something that I did I think that that has stayed with me is that when I entered the technology um, group at Morgan Stanley, you know, I was questioning how we were valuing these co these companies when not only did they not have profits, but they hardly had any sales. Right. And of course, a lot of people who were you know much more senior to me and much more experienced and I think much wiser said, "Oh, you know, Libby, you'll you'll learn. You know, you just you know you're getting, you're, you're getting your feet wet and yeah in terms right. of corporate finance." Um, so you know I, I, that, that that that's held to me this day because. You know, common sense actually does typically prevail. Uh, so, what all of these things did um, unravel, I think, in some ways, to my very kind of um, you know nascent neophyte uh, you know point of view, it wasn't necessarily that surprising. So, revenues and profits—that's old school. We're yeah. about eyeballs and <laughs> exactly. clicks. Exactly, cash flow statements. Right. What are you even talking about? Right. Yeah. I, I literally had a conversation yesterday with a venture capitalist who said, "Let's be honest. If we're looking at discounted cash flows." 
on these startups, they're all made up numbers. How could you even begin to put a put a figure evaluation on that? Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, even in the run up on the housing um, side as well. I was in business school, and I remember being in a, a class, and my you know my uh, my business school colleagues were just pounding the table that you know everybody should be able to own a house, and it doesn't matter what their income was, and doesn't matter exactly or three. Um, everybody should be able to get a loan, and you know again that just didn't pass the smell test. And I think my experience at Morgan Stanley just sort of reinforced that the importance of common sense and the, the smell test. My my favorite scene in The Big Short in the film is the Steve Carell character is literally speaking to a stripper <laughs> about exactly. a house, right. Right. and he says, "Wait." You have a house? She goes, no, I have six. <laughs> and that's like the light bulb goes off. The this is all going to collapse. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Just exactly. just hilarious. So so in 2003, you go to Washington. You work for a congressman, right? Yeah, congresswoman. Yes. Congresswoman. Yes. Congressperson. Yes. Um, and you're you're doing legislative work. You're, you're doing policy analysis. How do you make the transition from that back to finance? Was that a natural progression or was it a little bit... Hmm. Let's see if we can if we can mix these two interests. Yeah. So you know when I was at so I did a third year in investment banking at Morgan Stanley. I was in financial sponsors, so sort of in the private equity group. And all, when all my friends were graduating from the analyst program, they were all going into private equity programs. Um, you know, TPG and Apollo. And I just felt you know as much as I liked my experience in investment banking, and in some ways, so many of the things that I apply today, I learned from that experience. Um, I just was looking for something more. Mm-hmm. And before I even went to college, I had worked as a volunteer for a woman at the time who was in the Colorado State Legislature, where I'm from. And um, I had sort of always had this itch about going to Washington. And so it felt like it was um, it was scary in a lot of ways because, as again, all my friends in investment banking at Morgan Stanley were going to these you know very these premier private equity firms, and I was thinking of taking this really significant pay cut to do something that was pretty risky. Um, but this woman who I had worked for in Colorado had later gotten elected to Congress, uh-huh. and so then I worked for her as a legislative aide, and I really do view that as a, one of the inflection points in my career as something that felt really uncomfortable and really scary but um it was in retrospect the best decision and would you recommend going to inform you know so much of what i'm doing today would you recommend people go outside of their comfort zone and do stuff that's scary as a way to develop their career because it sounds like it worked out very well for you yeah it's you know it's so trite right um kind of go you know go do something that's that that pushes you that's uncomfortable but um at business school one of my professors gave her kind of at Harvard. They had these like last speeches of every semester, and she said, "You know, go towards the discomfort in your career." So when somebody asks you to do something that feels really uncomfortable uh, and makes you sort of nauseous, um, you know, do that because that means that you're going to to learn. And even if you fail, you're learning through failure. And so, you know, I think this going to Washington was even maybe a bigger example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, but, you know, you're in your 20s. And I felt like, uh, you know, looking back, again, it was such a wise decision, but it was it did feel really scary. I don't I don't think that's tried. I think people are afraid of of that uncomfort zone that this that I'm not familiar with this. I don't know this. And I wish when I was younger, I was more willing to try stuff that really frightened me. It, it's so easy to say, eh, I really don't have any expertise in that. I'm going to stick to my knitting. 
Right. No, exactly. And I think, um, you know, again, I see a lot of my friends who went right from investment banking to private equity to business school. And then they kind of had a reckoning in their career, right? Because they hadn't necessarily scratched those itches that were maybe a little bit more unconventional and a little bit scarier. And you have less to lose in your 20s, right? And have a family. Perfect time. um, No mortgage, no kids. Right. And I had made enough money at Morgan Stanley to, you know, have some savings because it was a really dramatic pay cut. Um, But again, money had never really been sort of the big focus in my life. It mm-hmm. was doing, I mean, again, sounds sort of cheesy, but doing something that fulfilled me and taking that step um, really kind of satisfied a lot a lot of what I was looking for. Take us through the <laughs> typical day in the life of the head of public policy at Bond Giant PIMCO. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that title is vague enough um, that it sort of encapsulates you know, um, a, a lot of what I do and allows it to be really dynamic, which it is. So you know, the way I think about the position, and it's um, I, the position didn't exist before um, before I sort of t- took it over. And so in some ways, that's given me a lot of flexibility and the firm a lot of flexibility in order to sort of design it um, in the way that they, you know, that they see fit and that um, is the most sort of beneficial from a client and investment perspective. So, I, you know, I, I view myself as wearing a couple of different hats in that in that role. One, one is this sort of traditional government affairs role, which is advocating on behalf of our clients and our business um, about policies in Washington, or you know, playing defense in some ways, depending on the administration and mm-hmm. what's going on in, D- in D.C. So one's more of a traditional government affairs role. Um, the other hat, though, that I think is is more unique in this position is that I'm pretty integrated into the investment process. So helping our investment committee sort of think about what's going on in Washington and how that may inform our positioning and our macro outlook. Um, and then sort of the last uh, p- sort of function that I serve is you know, talking to clients about how we're thinking about Washington, how we're looking at things. And as you might imagine, um, on any given day, you know, there's more demands in one of those sort of parts of the function than others. So sometimes our clients are really, you know, wondering, um, I get lots of questions about tariffs or about tax or what have you. Other um, other times, I'm we're, again, we're playing more of an active role in Washington from a, from a traditional government affairs perspective. So, so let's delve into your work with the investment committee because I'm kind of fascinated about that. We have just, we're recording this in, in early April. We've just had a run of I, I, I can't even use the word insanity anymore because <laughs> we need different adjectives. But but it's been the trade war and it's been the negotiations with North Korea. And just this week we had the FBI kick the doors down to the president's attorney's office, hotel and home. And it's just like the, there's no escaping the news. It's It's brutal. Now you go sit down with the investment committee. Is the discussion more from the perspective of Here's the macro issue of how these tariffs will impact these sectors, or is it a broader, this is what sentiment looks like in response to these headlines, or is it not limited to any of the above? Well, I think it's. I think in some ways it's all of the all of the above. The above. And I agree with you. It's just been relentless, right? I mean, the news cycle over the last two years has been. Uh, you just, you just cannot escape it. Um, uh, you know, one but, guy, uh, that one guy in Ohio who threw all his TVs out and hasn't read a newspaper in two years. <laughs> Other than him, for the rest of us, it, it's just been nonstop. Especially if you're in the, you know, if you're if you have to follow the news as part of your job. I mean, of course, from a policy, from a wonk and nerd position, um, that I kind of think. About 
myself as a policy nerd, it's fascinating, right? Because right. this is a really dynamic, um, you know, really in some ways unpredictable policymaking environment. We, we can speak for an hour about the effect of the pass-through tax cut legislation of LLCs. Like, right. you exactly. want to wonk like, out. We exactly. could spend three hours okay. going on. I, I don't know. I don't know if your, if your listeners are going to appreciate that. But um, but no, so, so but but sort of to your, to your question about how our investment committee thinks about this. Well, first of all, I mean, I would say that, that politics and policy have always been a big part of what we've considered, at least. It's been one of the inputs to our investment process. Um, Given the fact that you're, you began as a fixed income shop and what the Federal Reserve did and response to inflation has to be exactly so right. Important. So, so the Fed responds to inflation and growth, and what is a big driver of growth? Well, it's the fiscal part, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's other you know other parts of the economy, but that that G in the GDP equation is is pretty pretty important. The gross uh, part. The gross, right? Yeah, the government <laughs> part. Thank you. <laughs> Do we need to walk through the GDP <laughs> equation? Maybe, um, but um, but but so anyway, so so it's always been something that has been a big consideration. We've you know we've talked about it. We've thought about it. Um, but clearly, over really since the financial crisis, when the intersection of politics and policy and markets have been more acute, I mean, going mm-hmm. back to TARP, going back to Dodd-Frank, um, and then, of course, the you know the housing bailout, the banks bailout, all this, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what have you. And then fast forward to today, when all of these, you know, what's going on in Washington really is driving markets. Um, so, you know, I think we have the luxury in many ways of being a long-term investor, right? We're a fiduciary mm-hmm. for millions of retirees for thousands of pension plans and what have you. So we really are not necessarily reacting to the news of the day so much. We are trying to construct a longer term outlook about you know where we should be um, as it relates to, say, interest rates mm-hmm. or credit or emerging markets. And what's going on in Washington drives you know all of those things, arguably, these days. Um, so, so, so take trade. You know, some, the trade has been something I've been talking about, honestly, ad nauseum to our investment <laughs> committee really since right after the election because I think people underestimated how sincere President Trump felt feels about trade. I mean, I really, and you know Which this. is stunning to me because every it, speech he gave during the campaign exactly. was, hey, NAFTA's, I'm quoting the president, NAFTA's a terrible deal. I don't believe TPP is working for us. We need to change these rules. And if no one is going to treat us fairly, we're going to implement tariffs. Every time people say they're surprised, it's like, were you not listening to any of this? Exactly. And you even go back to the tape when he did interviews back in the 1980s, and he was talking about Japan cleaning our clocks on trade, about NAFTA, about China ascension to the WTO. I mean, I don't think a lot of public policy issues animated him before he became the president, but this was one of them. And I really think he sincerely believes that we're getting shortchanged on these trade agreements, and he wants to rectify it. it. It's been, you know, he's pretty all over the place on so many subjects. If you're going to give him credit for being consistent on anything— this goes back decades. There was an 05 interview with someone, maybe it was Oprah, yeah. where he's talking about we're not being treated fairly by other countries and our leaders are ignoring it. I think that was back in the 1980s, actually. 1980s, I think there were several, really? there were probably several interviews, but there was one interview, I think from 1987 or something with Oprah, where he's talking about Japan. He's totally, that, I have the exact same feeling that you do when people say, well, these tariffs are a shocker. Really? He's been pounding the table about this for, not that you have to agree with the tariffs, 
but you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised, right? right? And so, and you know, and 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 you know, you go back to 2017, and I think people thought, okay, well, he hadn't done anything in 2017 on trade, and I would be, I mean, not to be pedantic, but I would, I would take issue with that as well, because if you actually look at what he was doing and what his um, trade representative Bob Lighthizer was doing, what Wilbur Ross was doing at Commerce, they were laying the foundation for these tariffs. So, mm-hmm. you know, not to not to bore everybody, but to, before you can just pursue tariffs, you have to go through this investigation process, right. and that's you know, several took in this case almost a year to do. So on steel and aluminum, that was initiated back in April 2017, and then of course they just made the decision most more recently on on how to um, on how to proceed. But this this felt pretty clear. This, this yeah. was these were all these things were coming. Um, and I think to the credit of our folks at Pimco, you know, they weren't necessarily surprised that 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 this has happened. Um, but of course, you know, this is this is determining how markets are reacting. So it's something that we've been talking more recently about. Let's talk a little bit about the changing role of women on Wall Street. And and I have to go back to a quote from Michelle Meyer. She's um, one of the senior economists at Bank America Merrill Lynch. And she made a specific point of saying when she was coming up, there were very few women role models for her to look up to and emulate as an analyst slash economist, but it's beginning to change. What are your perspectives on that topic? I I think it's, I mean, it's changing, but it's at a glacial pace, honestly. I think especially on the the sell side and investment banks. I mean, if if I look back to when I entered finance back in 2000, you know, about almost half of my analyst class were women, Mm -hmm. um, which was, um, I think, really notable at the time. I just don't think you know what, what what's been um, in some ways discouraging is that over time there have been many women who've dropped out of finance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily that we're not starting at the right place. It's really a question of retaining them and developing them and promoting them and, and all of those things. Um, but but you know to Michelle's point, it's certainly I think the the landscape and, and is looking different, but also uh, the commitment among senior leaders. I think that um, you know our folks certainly at Pimco, uh, you know from the CEO down, are really committed to increasing diversity. And it's not just lip service; it's actually um, making sure that you know every interview slate has um, some a woman on it, um, at the very least one, mm-hmm. um, if not more. Um, it's making sure that. Uh, when we're looking at promotion classes, that they're balanced. Um, it's making sure that we lo- are looking to women for um, you know different opportunities instead of just uh, instead of maybe just just sort of the conventional man. So, you know, I think we're really trying to make a difference. Um, but it's again, it's been <laughs> I think it's been glacial. I just look over almost the last twenty years in finance. I've been involved in in financial services, and we haven't made as much progress as we really need to. But I do think it's I do think it's changing. So, so I had a debate not too long ago with a friend from outside of the industry, saying, "So when is when is Wall Street having its Me Too movement?" And my response was, "Hey, you know, things were really terrible in the yeah. '80s and right, '90s." Exactly. I think it had it in some and, ways. And yeah. from my perspective. Trading deaths were horrific, and the lack of general respect for women in that period was awful. But you had a bunch of litigation and the boom-boom room and all that crazy stuff. And I think Wall Street has been woke long before the rest of the country did, plus compliance, plus litigation. It seems Wall Street, uh, at least 
in my career has been ahead of other fields in terms of recognizing, hey, this is a problem. We better do something about it. Not that it's remotely fixed, right. but there's some awareness. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, however, if you look at the composition of management teams across Wall Street and the buy side, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily see as many women as you want to. So I think while we may not have um, the more draconian severe harassment issues that I think some of these under, other industries had that have been unearthed recently, we still do have a real development problem among women and retention problem. And so that's the key is how do we make sure we can we can get women in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get women in the door at 22 because they want to be in investment banking programs or they want to go to the buy side. Um, but how do we make sure that we're getting them to the next step? And I think some of it is um, – you know, this. Uh, some of it is the women do have to have children biologically, right. right? So making sure that we're supporting women during that period of time and not just making sure that they have maternity leave, but making sure that when they come back that they're supported, making sure that they don't necessarily miss out on a promotion or opportunity when they're out on leave or when they're really just in um, the fast lane of parenting. I think that and, – and, and, you know, the, the interesting thing at PIMCO is that we're seeing these demands both from women but also from men. I mean, we, a lot of men really? in our New York office especially have working wives. And so, you know, they want to make sure that they have parental leave, that they have some flexibility um, to make sure that they can go to the preschool recital or what have you. So in some ways um, – you know, and this, I don't want to say that this, if you kind of address these issues of mothering, that you're going to fix the problem, but that definitely is a piece in the puzzle that has to be addressed. And so, I think PIMCO, like other organizations, are trying to do so, that. So, promotion and retention are, is it fair to say it's just as important as pay parity and recruitment on the other end? I think, I think promotion and retention in some ways fixes the pay issue because a lot of times the pay issue is because you just have more senior men at the top. So if you get more women at the top, A, making these decisions about pay, but B, just making sure that there is just sort of balance about the distribution of pay. Um, And some of these recent studies that have come out have, I think, conflated the issue, right? So there's this UK gender yes. parity study that came out. And at least in our case, because like every other financial firm, we had to to publish it. What I think it, you know, I don't think we have a pay. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's illegal to discriminate about pay on gender, right? So it's well, not yes necessarily. And no. I, well, but anyway, in our case, I can say is that it's 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 not about pay parity. It's about making sure that you get more women at the top, so that distribution of pay doesn't look so so, so out of whack. So the area that becomes gray, or at least that people have been hiding in, has been. All right, if you're a level three CFA and an analyst, and you have five years experience. You would imagine that plus or minus a small percentage, that pay level should be sort of comparable regardless of gender, what have you. But some of the complaints have been two people, maybe one person's covering tech and someone's covering a less sexy space like utilities. You end up with some pretty wild disparities in pay, and the defense has always been, well, it's this sector versus that, right. or, yeah. or something along those lines. Is that still an issue that, that people are hiding behind? Or is it solved simply by having more senior women at the upper echelons and upper pay scale 
at at large firms. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't a I don't think there's one silver bullet, and b I can't speak about other firms, but I can just speak about about Pimco, and we've you know we brought in third party auditors to make sure that we're paying fairly um, in terms of somebody who has the you know wearing the same role, the same level, and what I, what have you, and the same function. Um, but again, it's the issue of making sure that we have women in leadership. So um, you know those women are you know having the same opportunities and are getting those big paychecks that men have been getting historically. So I, I I don't want to say that there's one you know there's one way to solve this, but I do think that developing women and promoting them and getting them into these decision making roles is is super important. Uh, your offices are in New York, right? Are you you're not in Newport Beach. You're in the New York I office. I'm in New York. Yes. Right. That yeah, office. So- that Newport Beach location it's is about nice. as beautiful as a place. It's pretty nice. Yes, yeah. you can you can imagine that a lot of my uh, my business school friends think I'm just nuts for working in New York versus Newport Beach, but of course New York is closer to to Washington. That makes that makes perfect sense for for your drill. So let let's talk about Washington and let's talk about your role. Is it more government affairs in D.C. or is it more? Hey, investment committee, here are some issues you need to be aware of. I mean, it's honestly, it's just both. And it mm-hmm. really depends on the environment. So you can imagine back uh, a few years ago after Dodd-Frank was was implemented and, you know, all the regulatory agencies were deciding the rules of the road um, for derivatives and other things that, that matter from our perspective. It was more of a traditional government affairs role. Um, we were educating folks in Washington. We were trying to, um, you know, make our you know, uh, make our arguments about, you know, what they they what they should kind of the direction of uh, the policy should go in. Um, but now, uh, just given what we've been talking about, you know, how newsworthy and eventful um, event driven this this administration has been, it's been more on, on the investment side. So we have a, a tragedy like the Parkland school shooting and these things normally fade pretty quickly. That seemed to have legs and really seemed to, to last a while. How do you integrate something like that into the investment committee? I know BlackRock is talking about a a gun-free fund and other such things. How do you deal with something along those lines? So, so that does not necessarily impact us as much. I mean, we'll, we might have sp- specific sectors that um, are impacted, but from a macro perspective, mm-hmm. you know, gun legislation is not necessarily going to impact the growth of the economy or the right. Fed's next move, right? So, most of the things that, from a pure kind of top-down macro perspective, are the things that are going to be driving growth and and inflation and you know, gun policy is not necessary, but it could obviously impact more of a bottom-up. Uh, so, so let's. Office. So then, let's talk um, about something that could impact theoretically the economy. You had a very interesting set of comments about the tariffs, and saying this is a sixteen trillion dollar economy. These are a hundred or one hundred fifty billion dollars worth of tariffs. Explain what the thought process is. And how that gets digested by the group running investments? Sure. So you know the 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 um, the statement that you're referring to is really based on the 50 billion. So the initial set of tariffs mm-hmm. that President Trump had announced as part of this investigation into China's 
you know, p potential um, sort of tenuous use of American intellectual property. Uh, Fifty billion is not going to really be too much of a headwind on the economy, right? We say a tenth of a percent, perhaps, in terms of a drag on GDP. That's really dwarfed by the more pro-growth things that we have seen from this administration, including, of course, the tax bill, which has gotten a lot of news, um, but also something that hasn't really gotten, I think, as much attention in the media, which has been the spending bill that was approved, you know, uh, earlier this year, and that adds about you know thirty basis points to real GDP growth. And in surprised everybody. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe not us, but um, but <laughs> we, we we knew it was coming. Honestly, I think that the size of it was surprising. Right. We were thinking more sort of twenty basis points, but the fact that it is up to the kind of the th the three tenths of a of a percent in terms of real, real GDP, we're talking about really you know a significant impulse from Washington. So about six tenths. So if you talk about one tenth of a drag, well. Again, the still the, the good outweighs the bad. I think the big question, however, is do these hundred billion dollars of tariffs um, do in addition to the fifty billion, or do we proceed with those? And then, of course, the big question is what does China do in in retaliation? And that there's just a lot of uncertainty around it. But to mm -hmm. our earlier to our earlier discussion. I just I, th I think it's going to be a much more significant concession from China for this administration to back off. I think people who view this as sort of symbolic posturing, just trying to get China to the negotiating table and an easy win are, again, really underestimating what how President Trump feels about this issue and the folks that he has in charge. I mean, Bob Lighthizer is an incredibly widely credible U.S. trade representative mm -hmm. who knows the law and was behind behind many of the more protectionist measures against Japan in the 1980s. So um, I would take, again, I would take the, I would take you know, President Trump very seriously on these issues. Uh, it, do you ever find yourself looking at the reaction at elsewhere in, on the street that they're not taking this? Of all the things, like I think the wall is never going to be built. I don't think anybody yeah. really cares about the wall. But the protectionism and the tariffs... I'm surprised people are surprised. Know, exactly. I'm surprised there is a surprise. So my, my, my husband trades equities, and uh, we have some you know, pretty interesting dinner conversations. And all of 2017, he's like, oh, you're such a bear about the, the trade policy and the protectionism and the you know, potential trade war. Um, but again, I mean, to, to, our, to our discussion, we needed this, this, was, this was so clearly telegraphed to the market that this was going to happen. It was just a question of when and not if. Um, that sometimes the equity market does, you know, it's, it befuddles us. Uh, and I think it befuddles me and sometimes it befuddles other folks. That have go. So let's hold the equity market aside and look at the uh, fixed income market. We now are back to trillion dollar deficits, the first time in about six or seven years. Uh, the $19 trillion collected total debt, I've seen all sorts of forecasts from 25 to 30 trillion. Whatever it is, it's a lot of money, yeah. and deficits tend to impact the bond market. How are you advising the investment committee of here's what deficits are going to mean for inflation, for credit availability, and for where yields may end up? Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is one where I'm really just an input, and it's really their analysis and discussion that will mm -hmm. lead to that um, in terms of how it impacts our position, positioning. But it, it but it is one of the reasons. Um, our view is that, you know, the spending bill was going to happen and that there was going to be, you know, some more fiscal profligacy than I think people had, had maybe expected. Um, but this is going to have a dampening effect on growth over the long term. So 
So, you know, again, we have the benefit of being long-term investors. We think through things through on a cyclical, sort of six to nine months basis, but we also have the luxury of thinking things through on a kind of a three to five year basis. Mm-hmm. And this is the genesis of our new neutral and um, you know new normal kind of paradigm uh, that we think this is one of the reasons why rates are structurally going to be lower because you're probably going to have a dampening of uh, you know on growth um, because of these large these you know kind of debt overhangs because in a of course in a um, in a time of recession or you know down you know or, or downturn the the sort of the fiscal um, side will have less capacity to actually mm-hmm. uh, step in because of these big deficits that they're running in good times I mean as you know this is a very unusual yes. approach right to right. be adding all of this kind of fiscal Juice at a time that you know the economy is actually doing pretty well. Four percent unemployment, right? So yeah. to, to add it late in the the economic cycle, um, we think would might preclude policymakers from stepping in when actually the economy. This really would have it. been better timed had it been six years earlier or. Fill in the blank. Three, four, five years later, whenever the next recession hits. Yeah, and you know we, you know we don't really take a normative view on policy, so we're not telling policymakers what they should do or what they shouldn't do. What we say is, if you do this, this is how the market will mm-hmm. react, and this is how the economy will right. react. So, um, you know, sh- should it have been done later? You know, who knows? But certainly, the, I think the practical impact of it being done now is that means that policymakers have less fe- flexibility longer term. So, procyclical stimulus is different than countercyclical stim- stimulus. Yes. Yes. Pretty, pretty econ 101, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you an uh, econ 102 question. How long – you're right at the, the intersection between Wall Street and D.C., between public policy and finance. How long does it take for the markets we'll, – we'll hold the, the efficient market hypothesis to the side for a moment – to actually understand what's taking place in D.C. and reflect it in prices. Because I'm thinking about your husband's comments <laughs> right. on, yes. oh, what is this all this tariff chatter in 2017 when it's not chatter, it's going to happen. Right. How long does it take for the markets to actually digest and, and adjust to these big issues? It seems some things take a long time to work their way in. Yeah, and I think um, I think that that's absolutely true, although it really is important to um, define which markets you're talking about, obviously, mm-hmm. right? So the equity market, which we just have less interaction in because we really manage primarily fixed income assets, um, seems much more reactive to these headlines. And, and, and arguably, things are more, you know, so, certain sectors are more priced for perfection, so they're probably more vulnerable to sell-offs when you do have a, a negative headline, whether whether it's trade or something else. Um, I think the fixed income market has been maybe a little bit more deliberate, a little bit more thoughtful about internalizing some of these policies. You see, I think, less dramatic moves um, from on headlines. Uh, and I think you see kind of less... Um, you know, less volatility, and again, it's what the drivers are of you know of fixed income versus versus equities. But I think that the the fixed income market has been a, more, a little bit more immune to been what, what's going on in Washington. We have been speaking with Libby Cantrell of Pimco, where she is the head of public policy and government affairs. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things uh, policy wonk and market related. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, and, of course, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. 
You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz or check out my daily columns at BloombergView.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Libby, so much for doing this. This has really been quite fascinating, and we've been trying to get you scheduled for some time. Before I get to my favorite questions, there there are a handful of other questions we didn't get to that I'm really I really want to just just get a few um, a few moments on, um, and and it's mostly politics. So the first question. And I think and this is a pretty standard issue. How should investors think about politics and how it relates to their portfolios? Because we, we get emails about this all the time. <laughs> I know. And I wish I had a, I wish I had a one, one uh, simple, straightforward way of thinking of it. I mean, I think in some ways, um, you know, investors, uh, I think, hope that politi- politicians that are at a base level do no harm, right? That they don't they, that they don't really get in the way of of markets. I think that the sort of second order is that they hope that politicians actually do something for economic growth, um, for longer term viability, and, and what have you. And then I think on the sort of flip side of that is really what they can do to to hinder markets and the economy and and you know not it's it's probably too reductive to characterize um, the past 10 years any one way but it has been more of I think a headwind just to markets and um, and you know maybe to growth than than the typical investor would would, would like meaning it to be. things like deficits or tax hikes or wars in Iraq or just je- the whole just gestalt. The no- I think the noise coming out of Washington, mm-hmm. really, right? I mean, I think the fact that um, bipartisanship isn't necessarily lost, but it's definitely on ice, at least for a while, um, that we've seen more manufactured crises, whether it's the debt ceiling uh, crisis or or government shutdowns, or just this real lack of comity and lack of, I think, constructive engagement between policy, between the two parties in order to actually address really longer term issues. Like our entitlements issue, which has become so polarized, but having worked on the Hill, there's some really easy ways to address this that are mm-hmm. actually quite bipartisan, that if a centrist coalition came out, I think put something forward in the political environment was different, it could actually affect change. But it's really the kind of the lack of, of political will, of political courage, and in some ways just the the lack of even discussion between between the two parties. It, it seems that a lot of these are unforced errors and self-inflicted wounds. I mean, for sure. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, and and so I just so again, you know, I don't it's not only are they not doing no harm and maybe it's not it's not sort of short term harm. But in the long run, you think that you really have to have the courage of your convictions and and just courage in general in order to address some of these really longer term big issues like we're that we're talking about. Either it's the debt issue, it's the entitlement issue, it's investment and in education or infrastructure or what have you. That that's that that takes courage and it also you risk not getting reelected. And I the, think we don't have folks who are have that kind of long term view. The the thing I'm shocked about you, you said do no harm for a second Put, put in place some pro-growth policies. If there's anything that's pro-growth, 
and has some bipartisan support, it, it's an infrastructure spend, and yet nobody seems to be able to get anything through. I know. It's been frustrating, right? Because it, it's something that was contemplated under President Obama, um, and it was certainly obviously contemplated on the campaign trail. And I think if— Both candidates. If, both candidates. And, I, and, and and to your point, you know, everybody, every member of Congress likes to bring it home some goodies for their sure. own district, right? Um, and that is one thing that, you know— uh, I would say, and again, there's not one explanation for why there has been a lack of bipartisanship, but the the elimination of earmarks, and this is going to be an unpopular thing to say, but you know, these are the things that that horse members, trading forced that, some sort of some it middle forces ground, some yeah. middle ground, and it really precludes sort of the ideological wings of both parties from. Um, you know, sort of abandoning their party and from not voting for something. So talk, it basically about- brings people to the table and it allows compromise. And I really fundamentally believe, and, and you know, to, to the to the credit of policymakers in Washington, I actually think this is a, a widely held belief that compromise is really central to governing. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like a, it's a statement of the obvious, right? So- but you need to bring those folks and you need to bring you need to incentivize them to compromise and earmarks was a way to do that. To talk about unintended consequences of of rule changes. Did it did anyone raise the objection that if you get rid of the earmarks, you're eliminating the ability for people to horse trade across the aisle? Exactly. Um, and and it's, it's been something that has been discussed behind, I think, closed doors recently. Uh-huh. But but it's so unpopular. The optics of bringing back earmarks, I think, God. would be what a perfect so headline. bad. But it's, you know, it's 1% of discretionary spending. It's such a small 1%. part of spending. And discretionary spending, of course, is only a third of all government spending because two-thirds is entitlement spending. So we're talking about a really de minimis. Is that right? Two-thirds? Is entitlement spending, yeah. It's about three trillion. It, it's about a trillion dollars isn't discretionary military spending. Military, a big chunk of that, also. Uh, just no. Uh, yeah, it's about five hundred billion of discretionary. So it's about half of discretionary is goes really? to military. That, that's and some of the mandatory, some of the entitlements is is earmarked for mm-hmm. um, military folks in terms of benefits and what have you and healthcare programs. But um, but yeah. So it's, anyway, so it's a very small part of discretionary spending. And again, this is, it, this is a difficult thing for a member of Congress to advocate for. But I do think it was an unintended consequence of its elimination. And you, you, you look at sort of the inflection point of when all of this partisanship happened, and maybe it's just totally coincidental, but it really was around 2010. It was partly because of the Tea Party, of course. Right. But again, it, it, there wasn't an incentive to bring them to the table because there weren't those earmarks anymore. And, and my last question before I get to my favorite questions, your role at PIMCO is so central to dealing with policy and the— um, and the the investment side, how do you not let your own personal politics interfere with your process? Yeah, well, something that I, you know, I think like every investor who's covering their own uh, a sector, they really try to do it in a dispassionate, objective way. Um, I think because politics is so visceral, it's so emotional, mm-hmm. um, it's maybe harder to do. But I really, and it goes back to our view that we don't have we don't have a normative view about how things should be. It's we're trying to, you know, react to how things are um, and predict how things will be. Um, mm-hmm. Again, not how they should be. So that so that's a that's it makes it easier because I'm not saying projecting my own kind of views on what a policy direction. I'm sort of saying, okay, this is what is likely to happen, and this is how the market will react to it. And I view that in a very similar role as any sort of credit research analyst who's looking at another sector, dispassionate, 
objective, but you know, it's 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 a harder just given the given the topic. All right, so let's get to my favorite questions. These are the <laughs> the issues we ask all of our guests. I think I'm woefully unprepared for um, this, by the way. <laughs> just just free associate the first thing that comes into your mind. Uh, tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. I'm a huge Denver Broncos fan. Um, no, I, I not a I, surprise I, I, considering I'm, where I'm you from, grew up. I'm from Denver. Uh, you know, I, I I struggled. I saw these questions this morning. I struggled with that one. Um, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's something, and we talked a little bit about this that you know taking these risks early on in your career. Um, and it's it's something I talk to about, especially to younger women who are who are coming into finance. But um, you know, taking risks, it's taking calculated risks is just it's just important. And I did that when I left finance temporarily to go to Washington, and then I helped you know in some ways create this role at Pimco. This role had never existed before. And if I hadn't spoken up, if I hadn't made the case for why this was important from a business and an investment perspective, I you know wouldn't be here today. So I so I don't know. What whether this is something that I want people to know about me, but I, I do think when reflecting on my career, it's something that's held me in good stead by taking calculated risks, by speaking up, um, and you know, by sort of by by risking failure. And I think that's a that's a hard that's a hard thing to do. Tell us about some of your mentors who helped guide your career along. Well, so I, you know, my my uh, I have to say my 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 mom <laughs> is mm-hmm. important um, because my my parents got divorced. My mom hadn't worked, um, and she went back to work at a pretty difficult time uh, because she had to. And I think seeing her her kind of resilience and her grit. Um, you know, just sort of solidified the importance of, well, for, first of all, it solidified the importance of work for me. That mm-hmm. I think as a, I think especially as a woman, um, you know, my view is that the work is just really important. It gives you, um, obviously gives you, you know, some professional identity, but it also gives you economic independence. And mm-hmm. I think that um, was certainly, you know, underscored to me during this kind of experience growing up. Um, and then, you know, later on, um, this member of Congress who I worked for uh, in the in the state legislature and then later in the House of Representatives, you know, she really, in some ways, exemplified what um, I hope I am now. You know, she was a real professional. She was dedicated to her work. She was ambitious. But at the same time, she was a mother and she was, you know, a, a friend and uh, a wife and all of those things. I mean, again, it sounds kind of cheesy, um, but to see that and I really really do believe, and we were talking about this, about, you know, women mentors in, in Wall Street, but you have to, you know, you can only be what you can see. Mm-hmm. And I think see, working for this woman when I was a teenager um, and sort of seeing her struggle with parenthood and running for Congress, you know, really just, again, kind of reaffirmed that you can do it. It's just it takes a lot of hard work and persistence. Let's talk a little bit about books. You have to travel a decent amount of work. I do work. travel, yes. What What do you read for, other <laughs> oh. than those PDFs that, that get produced by PIMCO, what do you um, read for pleasure, mar- either fiction, nonfiction, market-related, or well, not? I, would, I read both, right? So I read... Um, in terms of nonfiction, I read a lot of uh, presidential history, which uh-huh. I think has been, in some ways, reassuring or interesting during this period of time um, to sort of see 
you know, read about what we went through in the 19th century or, or what have you. Um, give, us, how, give us a few how, titles. How, cha- how chaotic that has been. Um, uh, well, so so I just I just downloaded um, Grant by by Ch- Chernow. Right, everybody um, which is loves supposed that. Supposed to be supposed to be amazing. And then on the other hand, I, I like to read <clears> fiction <throat> too because to what we were talking about earlier, there's just been no escape from the news right. cycle. And so to read, and I was, you know, read Fire and Fury, and it, it just like, no, it's just too much. It's just too throws much. You right it's ba- too much. It's I, like right I, back in there. I had the exact same reaction to you. I read the first 30 pages, and I'm like, wait, now I'm doing this when the TV is off? It's I know, too much. I know. I ended, up, I ended up feeling I had to read it for my job, but it wasn't necessarily for pleasure. I felt like right. it was more of a work assignment um, than anything else. So, you know, I like novels, but on, honestly, I think like other folks have said, you know, being a, a worker, working and traveling and then being a parent doesn't allow me a lot. And then having to read the news. So All honestly, right. I go to bed reading Twitter and I wake up reading Twitter, which is not, <laughs> I don't think is healthy long term. No, it's definitely not healthy. Long- well, <laughs> unless you mute with with uh, great extreme prejudice, if you're muting people who are just, ugh, I can't read another screed and threaded um, fest. I'm just. I'm done with this guy. Unless you are an aggressive muter. Yeah. It, it's, it's just painful. It is. Well, yeah. It's just. Uh, it does. It feels just relentless. So, so tell us what has changed over the course of your career within finance. Are you seeing progress, or is it still a glacial pace of change? You know, I think again, you know, going back to our discussion, at least about gender and just about diversity in general, you know, uh, you know, ethnicity and what have you. I, th- um, it, that has been glacial. I don't think that looks very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but and a big but here, I think there is much more of a commitment, of an awareness, a commitment on boards, a commitment among management teams to actually change things, and not again, not just creating a woman's network and having women, you know, right. talk over glasses of wine about whatever it's really about you know a fundamental commitment to change and i think that does feel like it's changing and you know i think the data has is really compelling on this and this is what we've been trying to make the argument to other folks and our clients are making this argument to us as well is that diverse teams lead to better outcomes from a performance from a from a financial perspective so this is not just a question of it'd be nice to have this is a question of a must-have because it really is drives the bottom line avoid group things can, it's never a bad exactly thing. right. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh gosh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I fail every day. Um, you know, I, I and I, I, you know, I joke, but I do feel in some ways. I again, I think as just a juggling. Uh, you know, not to to put too much of a point on this, but having two small children. And trying to do what, and that, you know, we haven't really talked about this, but I also co-head our New York office here, mm-hmm. and so I just I have a lot of my uh, a lot of my plate, and invariably I feel like I'm letting somebody down. I'm not doing something, um, whether it's you know, and usually work takes priority over over my kids. Um, uh, even though my kids are my, of course, my number one priority, and so is my husband. If he's listening to, the, to this, just kind of it's towards that, the end of put it. that in there. He's probably <coughs> he's probably tuned out. Right, it's towards he the end has of it. Me on mute. It's just you, me, and a, a couple of pigeons. Nobody else is paying attention. Um, but but you know, I mean, I, I you know, again, not to kind of be trite, but I think that you just realize that um, you know nobody has it. I, I, 
going into to to working starting to work at 22 you sort of think that you look up to the, especially the women at 30 or 40 and they think that they have it figured out I think as I realized I just turned 40 you just realize that you never figured this out and that that's okay and that you sort of have to give yourself the freedom in order to to fail but also to rectify things mm-hmm. um so you know I just keep I keep just trying and trying is you know and I, I that's again a kind of a lesson for my mom is that you just, uh, you know, persistence is important, and I think persistence can get you can get you far. What do you do outside of the office to relax and just <laughs> kick back? Oh, I go to my my six year old's karate uh, karate classes. Uh, you know, I, I again, there's, I, I mean, I do, I and I, I, uh, I really, I do have a lot of, um, I spend a lot of time with my kids on the weekend, of course. Um, I, you know, I try to, I try to work out, but I have a three and a six year old, so they're pretty unforgiving when I'm, when I'm around, they, they, you know, they want my, um, they want my time. But, um, you know, I think I, I wouldn't have it any other way, right? I wouldn't have it. I think that being a mom makes me a better employee and being an employee and be having, having a career makes me a better mom. Um, so it's, it's hectic, but I, I wouldn't do it any differently. So what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college graduate who is considering a career in finance? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a good question. I mean, I th- you know, I think um By the way, these are all really I know, good questions. I they are they're, they are all That's yet that is yet another good question, Mary. Uh you know, I you know I, what I think is, and I I see this uh, you know in our in our New York office that um, has even a, a more disproportionate number of millennial millennial folks, um, but that their voice is really important. And I think what we're seeing this is we're seeing this in Parkland, right? Is that um, I guess they're not that's not technically the millennial generation, but but what have you? But that this kind of younger generation with a fresher perspective is really important and. Um, I think they need to be realistic about how much they can change in organizations, but that shouldn't necessarily prevent them from speaking up, from trying to make change. And we we found that in our, at least in our New York office at PIMCO, that we've really, a lot of the change that we've instituted over the last two years from a cultural perspective has come from those folks because they've made suggestions um, and they have a, a totally different perspective. And I think growing up with social media is just totally changing this generation and uh-huh. their and their perspective um and i and i think is moving these sort of you know you know um not not you know these kind of older more traditional organizations in a, in a really positive way so i would say you know join don't don't be discouraged by sort of financial services uh, join financial services but also be prepared to to speak up and try to make some change and our final question what is it that you know about the world of investing and public policy today that you wish you knew 15, 20 years ago when you came out of business school? <laughs> wow. I mean, I think it's changing every single day. So it's, uh, um, you know, I think, um, you know, in some ways, it's in some ways I was lucky, right? Because I think I saw that Washington didn't speak Wall Street language and Wall Street didn't speak Washington language. Um, so I think in 15, 15 years back, I wish I had more confidence that that was really the case, that there was really a need for this. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I think what we're, you know, what we're seeing here is that markets really are influenced by what's going on in Washington and, 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 and policymakers. So um, I don't know if that's what, what I wish I knew, but I, but I, but again, I think that this bridge between the two is really important. And I think will become even more important going forward. We have been speaking with PIMCO's Libby Cantrell. She runs the Office of uh, Public Policy and Government Affairs at PIMCO. 
If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, uh, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, and you could see any of the other 200 or so such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff that helps put together these podcasts each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.